Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening. I just wanted to let you know, again, I'm recording my album at the Lincoln Lodge in Chicago, August 12th and 13th. If you're in town, I'm also doing a live hunk show on my birthday, which is the 11th. Adam Burke is going to be there. Mike Burns is going to be there. For tickets, you have to go to thelincolnlodge.com. I will see you there. Mike knows like so, like the biggest names in comedy. Dude, you gotta see this guy's fucking show list. He like has like the biggest names on uh, in comedy on his on his show. It's kind of unreal, Mike, how you do that. The best po- panel pod on the internet. This is what the show's about, Nick. That we have our finger on the pulse of America's uh, trends. Hi, everybody. Hey. This whole day can suck a thousand fucking dicks. Yeah, boy. Welcome to Hunk with Mike. Bridenstine from Muscatine to the Silver Screen. Wait, it's a podcast from Muscatine, Iowa to your AirPods. Here's Mike. I'm Mike Bridenstine. Shout out Rick Gonzalez. Shout out Bad Planet. Shout out to my unpaid announcer, Tony Tone Lokensoul. I do have good news for you. My jury duty is complete. I cannot talk about it for two more weeks, but I will have plenty to say. Due process is an important thing. The schedule might get back to normal very soon. Of course, then I'm going to go to Chicago. We will figure it out together. I've been busy. This week, I sat down with TJ Miller. We did an interview for my book about the Chicago scene. So it's not a regular podcast. But you know TJ from Silicon Valley on HBO and the Deadpool franchise and several other TV shows and movies. If you didn't check out part one of our interview, that was a couple episodes ago. And that's about it. So without further ado, here's my interview with TJ Miller. In your opinion, why was the Lion's Den so good? According to everybody, it's like the greatest open mic of all time. You go to any other city and they suck assholes. Why was the den good? Multiple assholes. They suck multiple assholes. Oh, there's so much to suck out of because when you finish sucking one asshole, there's just so much more sucking that needs to be done. So you've got to go on to the next asshole. A lot of them do go on to multiple assholes. Line them up. Let's suck them out. Uh you know, I've been to a lot of other open mics. There was one that I used to do in Atlanta called the Five Star Bar, I think was the name of it. And that was a great open mic. It actually was also on Monday. So I don't know if there's something about Mondays where you have all the potential of the rest um, of the week of sets. Yeah. So nobody has a shit... Uh, set on Sunday and is like, well, don't worry about it. I've got the rest of the week. Now, for everyone, the week starts with Monday, you know? Yeah. So I think it could be something to that. And then I think, you know, it must have had a lot to do with um, just the kind of sheer um, amount of great people. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you've only got three or four great people on the scene, then you're kind of waiting for them to get up and then everybody else is sort of suffering through. But the lion's den and the Chicago scene at that point had like 10 or 15 great people, you know? Yeah. 
we've talked about them and we haven't even talked about the Sven's and the, um, you know, the, those great people who were funny, but also funny because of their sense of humor. Yeah. You know, and how bizarre they were. And then we also had a healthy mix of um, people that were not terrible, but they weren't great. And uh, one of those was Biscuit, I think, right? Does that make sense? Big, big guy. Brought, uh, brought, tonight's uh, was brought to you by the number 10 of the mic stand himself. Yeah. And, you go, and the letter D and turn to his profile. And, you know, Diamond J. Harris had a, he ironically had one where it's, do you want my biscuit? And what was great is these always worked. And they worked in the beginning because they're funny. And then they begin to work because you're in an open mic and all the comics see it every day. Yeah. Or every single week. And so now it's funny because they do it every single week. And then that leads me to another thing about the Lion's Den, which is we had actual people coming to the show uh, to see the show who were civilians. Yeah. And some of them um, were repeat customers yeah you know one of them with a very special laugh pablo and then, castro uh, other people god he was like the angel of the lion's den pablo except if you were bombing his the absence of that laugh was deafening as well yeah you definitely you you knew that things were not going well if he was there and not laughing <laughs> it would even hurt if he was in getting a drink in the other room you'd be like where is that <laughs> <laughs> it was just so wonderful and then people kind of knew about it and so some people would go every month or something like that yeah or it'd be a month and a half and a group of friends would be like do you want to go to the lion's den because and here's another component because there was so much um there uh there were so many comics yeah. Because what was it? I think everybody got three minutes. Yeah, I think it was the light was at three and a half or something. It was crazy. What, four minutes or something, whatever it was. I think it was light at three. Yeah. And then if you were better and you were known, they every 10th comic or something, they give you they give you light at five. So you get six minutes. Yeah. You know, and those were sort of the pros. There was also the component of you know, these people that would come, they knew about it. It was in a, a kind of a cool neighborhood. It was in a very accessible neighborhood, as I recall, in the sense that there was a train, there was an L stop right near there. Brown line, yeah. And yeah, yeah. I think there were a lot of people, I think it was Brown Line Irving Park, and there were a lot of people that kind of, um, so we'll go every month or every so often they'd say, oh, we should go and, you want to go to the Lion's Den? And the reason it was always fun is, was cheap booze, right? The beers were really inexpensive. Two, do- uh, two dollar bottles, yeah. Yeah, two dollar bottles. And then the food was good. They had like a good hamburger. It wasn't the best hamburger, but they had bar food, but it was kind of, um, you know, it was no like Lindy's Red Lion or something like that, but it was good food, cheap beer, and you were guaranteed to have fun. And it had this thing that I used to joke about, which was that, the Lions End was the opposite of Harold Knight at the you know Improv Olympic, because Harold Knight at Improv Olympic, you know these groups would do twenty minutes or something like that. It would be three groups maybe, 
uh, maybe sometimes two groups, 20 minutes. And as soon as you realize they're terrible, which happens in about a minute and a half, you're trapped. You're absolutely trapped in this experience, especially yeah. if you're up front um, for another 20 minutes, which is just hell. And they didn't do a great job of getting people drinks there. So sometimes you would have an empty beer, right? You're waiting for pizza, which is the only thing that they served in Improv Olympic, which is pretty good pizza. And you're just sitting there, empty handed, watching this group bomb for another 15 minutes. And when, when improvisers are bombing, it is like time just slows down to a molasses, almost halting pace. And you're just like, Please don't let this next one be about a guy pretending to be a girl who just got her period for the first time. It was just, it was that level of awful. Yeah. And, um, and the line stand was the opposite. Yeah. You, you saw a comic, they were bombing. It was kind of funny and they'd be gone in a minute and a half, yeah. two minutes. Yeah. And, you know, if they were awful or offensive, well, you know, Steve-O or whoever would hit him with the light. And then they need to get off because they were quick to, if you blew the light in any serious way, you weren't going to be on the sheet next week, you know? And so to retain, and everybody respected the light because it was a real crowd. Yeah. Because you go to these other open mics and a lot of them were empty or it was just comics or you'd have five or six people in the audience. The lion's den was guaranteed always an audience and an audience primarily of civilians, real audience people. Yeah. And I think so in a way, everyone prepared every week for that lion's den set as if it was a big showcase show at a real club at the laugh factory, the comedy cellar or the stand or any, you know, and for, for our level, that's what we thought. And the other thing is people never stopped doing it. So the best people would come and they were the highlights. And if you said, oh, I, you said to your friends, hey, yo, let's all go. You want to, guys want to go to the lion's den? Like, that'll be super fun. And um, everyone always would be like, yeah, sure. That would be fun. And I bet you will see Pete Holmes. And they're like, oh, no, I love that guy, Mike Bridenstine. It's like, yeah, I hate him. I just think he's so offensive. He's always just talking about south asian people and that's not even a term right now maybe that'll come to fruition in the future yeah um but you know so they always could count on some great comics and again the horrible ones you kind of love because you're only going to see it for a few minutes and then it's over something about that cocktail which i think who started the lion's and was it steve-o and josh Cheney? no they were inherited that so it started by a magician an improviser um, uh, a guy named Tim Adams, who was a magician and an improviser, whose name escapes me. But the three rings were stand-up, sketch, and improv. And so there was a stand-up open mic followed by an improv open mic. That's right. It was called the Three Ring Circus or whatever. Yeah. And then Klinger oh got God. it. Klinger got it and Dan Kaufman. And then they gave it to Steve-O and Josh. Dan Kaufman is so great. I love his, his joke. He had a joke about his father going to put the straw in the, you know, in the, and he would miss it. He would, to put it in this glass, he would miss it. And then he like, this is, I said it was very good. He'd miss it again. And then he'd get it in there. And Dan Kaufman would go, I mean, it's a wonder I'm even here. 
And that was such a great joke that like you had to think and you had to bridge one or two things and then you got to the yeah. lab. But yeah, now I remember. And it's funny that improviser's name escaped you because it was the magician who was the artist of escape. Yeah. He was well versed in the art of escape. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I think, you know, it, that cocktail was amazing, but it obviously stopped being a three ring circus because you could go there and do magic. I remember there was one or two people that would, a magician would do a little bit of magic. I never remember there being a juggler. I know I juggled a little bit there. I did some juggling there. Um, but I was the only one that I ever remembered doing that. But I definitely remember there were a couple magicians who would come. I think Tomas Medina. Yeah. The, um, yeah. A very funny magician. He would come and try and try out tricks and do some patter. Um, but I think it was the format, whoever kind of turned it into this 20 or 25 comic extravaganza. And also you could get there late. So there's another thing where it's like, at a certain point you could ask somebody to sign you up. Yeah. But even if you got there and it was before like 2 a.m., you could still get on. So at you know, towards the end of my time in Chicago, I would do a couple open mics on Monday beforehand and then close with the lion's end because the other ones would end at 10. There was one, I think, at O'Hara's or something on um, Division or maybe Halstead, but it was, that was sort of near this, and that was funny, that was a music open mic and I was usually the only comic that did it. Yeah. So I would go and wait until there was a maximum amount of audience members, then I would ask to go up, I would do it, do okay, and then head to the lion's den because I knew that uh, I'd still be able to get up. So I think all those components together made it this really, I don't know, just kind of interesting format that lent itself to new audience wanting to come in, returning audience members dropping in every month or so, regulars who were there every single week. And then, you know, an audience of a lot of comics. Once you get 20 comics in a room with civilians, they become great audience members. Yeah. You also had enough people in there that if other people went out to have a beer, eat their food in the main room, uh, you know, three or four comics go out to take shots or whatever, you would still have a, a totally full audience. Right. And at the worst, when it wasn't packed, there was still like 20, 25 people, which is a great audience by any other open mics uh, standards, especially if a lot of them are civilians. So I think that's it. What did you think? What's what is your theory? Well, there I I've spent a lot of time thinking about the front room back room situation and how it fostered a community a little bit and how there wasn't a lot going on. There wasn't a lot of bouncing around and so people stayed there and so you not only had this event like you were talking about like it's Monday for like even the new comedians you got at least one awesome show a week if this if you count the Lions Den. So that's like way better stage time than the open mics where people are just like performing to comics, staring at their notebooks or whatever. And, and comics are competitive. Yeah. Yes. And so, and also competitive in the, in a culture of weaponized weirdness. So you got Nick hiding in a closet for two hours and Brady pulls him out and we all see that or hear about it. And we're like, what the fuck can I do? What's the weird thing that I can do? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, there was, I meant that, bad when you just have a room full of comics some of them are competitive and they don't want to laugh i just i crashed an open mic with cj sullivan at like seven o'clock at stand up new york 
it was all comics, but you have to bring a couple people. And that was like a Dave Odd show because Dave Odd did all these comedy competitions. Yeah. And instead of making making comics bring people, he would say the winner gets $125 or something. Or sometimes if he could get enough people, $300, which is insane. That yeah. would be like a good portion of my rent for the month at that point. <laughs> yeah. And so you would want to invite a lot of people. And I remember I won a couple of times when the competition brought a huge amount of people just because they didn't do well. But Pat Bryce was the only person I know that would fucking show up, no friends, maybe bring a girl or something like that. And then he would perform and it was a packed audience because two of the other comics brought all their friends. And what would happen is... (laughs) They, Today's Pat Bryce Day, P.S. This is the 15th. This is the day he died. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, then this is the perfect day to say that he used to go in. And, yeah, I have it in my, uh, I always have it. Um, and I put, um, I put Pat Bryce died. The world lost a great comic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, he would come and here's how it shook out. Um, you would vote for which comic you liked the best, right? So everybody would vote for their friend. Yeah. And then the second person, cause you could vote for top two or top three, I think top three. And the second person they would vote for would be Pat Bryce. But then the other contingent of people would vote for their friend and then also Pat Bryce. So Pat Bryce would get like, 180 votes and the other two people would get like you know only i don't know you know 60 votes or whatever it is yeah and the math is really off here but he (laughs) would win because people would vote for their friend but then pat bryce and i think a lot of people would be like well pat was the best i'll vote for our friend as number two yeah he would get like 300 dollars, and the kids couldn't complain because he was so much better than them yeah but the Dave Odd thing was like a bringer show and those bringer shows, they're still waiting for their friend to go up. And a lot of people leave this is in New York city. I'm talking about right now. And a lot of people leave after the friend goes up. Cause they're, you know, the show is like 15 comics. Right. And they're all doing right. minutes and they're not good. So I think that was, you know, another reason that you're right that, but to speak to, Nick Vatterot's in a trunk or something and he's there the entire show and then Brady takes him out and they do a fake ventriloquism bit. You'd hear about those things. So you'd also stay and watch the other comics. Yeah. So for a while, Monday night was a three or four hour experience of just watching comic after comic after comic. And I think in some ways that also made all of us as good as it made us because we were just exposed to like 30 or 40 people every week seeing what they thought was funny, seeing what worked, seeing what didn't work, seeing how somebody would go this far, somebody else would go that far. And then you did have your people who you were waiting to watch. You know, Brady Novak always had something crazy. Nick Vatterot was always doing something completely different. And then there were just people where it's like just solid jokes. And so you're kind of waiting to see what, I think you were like that. I think, um, Dan Kaufman was like that. Mike Holmes was like that. I mean, Kumail was like that. It's like, what is, what are these guys working on? And then we'd see you work on it. And then the next week we'd see you make it better. 
And then, so we would also watch and learn from the progression of that kind of making it funnier, but also like seeing it, seeing it workshopped. We would see people workshop it. So then you learn, okay, he did this differently, did this. So it was like, um, it was great. It was a master class every single week. It was a real hot audience every single week. And it was so many comics and you've been preparing all week to see what you wanted to do. But again, it was really only me and Nick Vaderot that for a long time we would do something different every single week. Yeah. And I thought that was really fun too, because we also weren't really building towards anything, but then I found, I'll never forget. I found my closer and that I would do at the lion's den a lot. I did that, you know, for a while I was doing that every week or every other week. Was it, do you remember the set? I, it could have been the last night of the den. I'm not sure. I think you were gone and you called a phone and either Ken or Steve-O, like, it was like, um, they, they call it like TJ Miller. And then the person went up on stage with, just with like a flip phone and held, you obviously wouldn't know what they did, but do you remember calling in a set to the den? Yeah, for sure. Was that the last night? Do you remember? Yeah, I think so, because I couldn't be there because of some work thing. Okay. Um, and it was, because by that time, I think I had gone to L.A. to be on Carpoolers, that ABC show. No, and, this is like in 2004. Oh, no, then it would have been. Well, then why would I have been gone? Um, I'm not sure. That might have not been the last night. Okay. I think that was just one of these times I called in and did the set. And as I recall, it went pretty well. Yeah, I mean, or you could have thought this is a funny idea. Who knows? Like, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? But I remember calling in, and kind of, you know, the bits were all about how you couldn't see me, and also that the reception was bad, so I couldn't hear if people were laughing or not. Yeah, so I do a joke and be like, "Can you hear me? Were you laughing? Is it was that funny or is it bad reception? Was it not funny? How about now? Can you hear me now? That was at the height of the can can you hear me now bits." Let me throw your name. Sean Cole. Oh, man. And I've seen him since. He, like, went away and had a bunch of kids and lives in the forest or something. Yeah, he's in Oregon. But he was one of those guys that everybody wanted to see. Because he would do different stuff also, but he just had this sense of humor that no one else had. And his famous bit is, do you like your bodies? Are you comfortable with your bodies? And then he would run, 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 and he would jack off and he would uh, point it down and spit it. You want to see it spit, point it straight to hell. Yeah, where it belongs. I did, uh, before that, when I was in college, I actually tell this during on stage. I don't know why I never did. But um, uh, Kate, one time I was having sex with Kate. Um, uh, and I jumped out of bed right as I was about to ejaculate, and I uh, I pointed it into the, the trash can, put it there, and I was like, this is where it belongs! <laughs> so that was pretty fun. So I especially enjoyed that, Sean. But Sean would just get up and do just the weirdest stuff. His sort of predecessor, who CJ just hung out with, was O'Donnell. Bill O'Donnell. And Bill O'Donnell, the first time I ever saw him, he was 
saying the N-word and calling people the N-word is the very, very end of the night. There's only white people in the audience. And he was just calling them the N-word over and over again and throwing snap pops at them and trying to get them out of the room. Uh, and he wasn't saying it in a mean way. He was kind of like, hey, listen here, all you N-words, get on out, go on, get, you know? It was just so bizarre and so offensive. And for whatever reason, that was one of the first times I saw a show there and I thought, um, well, you can really do whatever the fuck you want here. He would throw up and on so stage, they said. Me. What? He would make himself purposefully throw up on stage, they said. I believe it. There's not a, there is not a thing I wouldn't believe that guy doing after I saw him that. But then by the time I was doing the Lions, and he wasn't really performing. Yeah, I yeah. remember that he wouldn't get up that often. And when he did, of course, it was a huge deal. But Sean Cole, he was up every single week, and he was one of those guys where you just wanted to see what he would do. And he didn't really care if he got laughs or not, you know? And it would it would always almost be offensive, but he's such a good dude. Yeah. So I'm just giving an example. I don't remember exactly. But he would, like, um, I, you know, I ran into this woman uh, outside of Walgreens today. I just looked at her and I said, do you like what you got going on there? Do you like any of what you're doing there? You like that? Is that something that you like that you're doing? And then he would kind of laugh at himself. And it was just all about him being so bizarre and having the sense of humor that didn't fit and then kind of shoving that into life. But it was very absurdist too. Yeah, so I, yeah. I don't know. He was one of my absolute favorites. And I was sad he um, stopped. I thought wasn't quite as funny in an accessible way as Pat Bryce, but um, he was up there with that kind of like, whoa, in your face. You know, you just can't believe this guy's saying that. Somebody that gets mentioned a lot who was like a classic setup punchline comedian who you don't hear about anything anymore from is Nathan Trenholm. Do you have any thoughts on yeah, memories? Yeah, so funny. Yeah. And he was one of the guys that went to L.A., yeah. Was he on Star Search or something? He did something. Premium Blend, I want to say. That was it. So he went and he did Premium Blend, but he stayed in... Um, he stayed... He went to Vegas or something. Chicago. That's, I heard that he went to Vegas and married like the super hot stripper or showgirl or something like that that was way taller than him. Um, but he was. He'd really get it. But I think he suffered from... He probably got that... Um, uh, he probably got that premium blend because of the same reason that I think the Lions and wasn't fun for him because he would do the same things over and over and over. Right. And the comics just kind of got tired of that because it's funny, but it was very set up punch. It was, he did comedy very much by the book. Yeah. Um, but as I recall, he kind of went to uh, Vegas and just kind of stayed there and then got, into that it would be really interesting to know if he's done um uh you know comedy at all in the but you know he was a guy who i think maybe had that um comedian nathan trenholm but that was uh 2012 yeah and he won 
the San Francisco International Comedy Competition in 2004. Remember when that was a really big deal and everybody could pay and get into that and then go to San Francisco? But I could never afford that. Going to sort of try and win at festivals, I just was not in my budget, you know? Right. And then once I had a day job, it was one that I could not leave for like a weekend or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he was really funny. He was this little guy with glasses and his hair was always done right, you know, slick back and yeah. Um, but he had great jokes. It's just he would not write new material. Yeah, I don't even remember. I I don't remember exactly any of his jokes, and I cannot remember a time where I was like, "Whoa, he's doing like all new stuff." Right. Um, this wait or this girl said, "I can't eat uh, that because I can't have. I'm an actress, so I can't have carbohydrates." And he said, you're pronouncing it wrong. It's pronounced waitress. That was a big one. Oh, yeah. I remember that was a great joke. Yeah, totally. So he had ones like that. Really, yeah, set up punchline. Um, But after a while, you hear that. But that was his joke. At that point, everybody kind of had one joke that really worked. What was yours? Not at that point. Not at that point. Yeah. No, I my think big I, my big early two thousands joke was I would say the f- the worst jokes I wrote when I was stoned. That was like the first yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yep. the first thing I would do that worked. Um, and then I had like the Chicago stories where the guy what like were, snorts the line or whatever. What were those jokes? The stone jokes. Oh my god, terrible! I tried them at a show recently for the Chuck anniversary show. But it was like, yard sale, nobody wants to buy your yard. It's covered in all your old stuff. Like, yeah, that's a hilarious joke. Why don't you, that's hilarious. It was me trying to, I know where it was derivative of. And so it bothers me that it's like, um, it's, Hedbergian? it's exactly me doing Hedberg and pretend, and like using a device. It's funny though, also Tony Baldino goes, you know how people, he's the Schomburg improv. He goes, you know how you tell people your worst jokes? And I said, yeah. And he goes. I think they want to hear your best jokes and then like i was like oh fuck yes. he's so funny man i saw him just recently uh and he really was very mafia and i found out just this last time that his family was in the mafia oh that makes sense and that he married a girl whose father was like a detective in the chicago vice squad and that at the wedding they wanted to have a photographer, but the mafia people were like, no pictures of us. <laughs> Absolutely cannot take pictures of us together around each other, all this stuff. So that was a really funny, bizarre marriage of um, kind of Chicago. There's some there's some lore to that story that none of us really knew. But he had a very mafia approach to being a mentor with comedians. That's funny. You know, he, he would always, he couldn't stop saying to me, be nice to people on the way up because you're going to see him on the way down and i kind of hated that because first of all i was never mean to anybody and second of all he kind of talked about titus and how he had this television show and he was acting like an asshole and he always regretted that and, and then he'd just make his way to saying that i just thought that was weird because i i've never been mean to anybody well i think I that maybe owners i just he just wanted to say guy. something no, he just wanted yeah, to say I something. Was, I think it was the thing to say to a guy who was sort of on the rise. Yeah. Um, because that is the only advice he could give because he can't be like, 
you should tell better jokes because the jokes were working. What's now. funny is, uh, <laughs> and I've teased him about that set. You can sure. only you can only tell people that on their way up. You can't say that to somebody on their way down. <laughs> They'll be like, "Yeah, I'm on my." Right. You can't be like, "I hope." Yeah. yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Ja Rule. Be, like, be nice to people on your way up. No, I think it's well. I hope you were nice to people on the way up because you're on your way down. Yeah, were you? You're gonna see all of us. And you know, he's almost kind of saying, "Be nice to me on the way up because you're gonna see me on the way down." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kind of wanted to be like Tony. I'm gonna see you all the time. Up, <laughs> now you have down. a 400 club. Yeah, lateral. You have a huge club that's basically a cavernous theater. So I will be seeing you consistently up and down and up again and all that. Yeah. It would be different if he had like governor's comedy club. It's like, you better be nice to me, kid, because you're going to leave me in the dust, but eventually you're going to come crawling back. Yeah. That's like, that would make more sense, you know? But instead he has one of the, at, at, at one time it was the biggest improv comedy club in the United States. And now it remains just as big. Now some of them are, San Jose's 550. You've got a lot of 500 seat ones. Um, Irvine is like 500 seats. It's a uh, stadium at Schaumburg. Yeah. 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 Schaumburg is, it's tough. That's a tough one. There's, you sort of have to, you have to wait for the laughs to get all the way to the back to start your next show. I have seen it full like once when like Mike Holmes opened for a tell. The first time I ever headlined, they had Bert. Kreischer, I was opening for him, and he couldn't make it to one of the Sundays, or the, he couldn't make it to the Thursday and the Sunday. So they're like, "You can headline. You're from Chicago," and I was like, "Well, not, not fill the improv from Chicago." And so I still have nightmares. The first time I ever fucking headlined was in front of thirty people in that fucking room. It was it was god awful. That. and that is hard because you probably weren't at a point where you could riff with the crowd yet. Right? I tried so hard, and it, it yeah, I I wasn't ready. But you hadn't had a lot of experience. No, so it's like now I'm going to governors, and there's going to be like, who knows, maybe forty people, fifty people, maybe the Late Show has like thirty five people. I don't think that's the case. But if I go with CJ, and it's thirty five people. He'll have a great time. Yeah. He's going to be able to do bits and also talk to them. And then I will just bring, I always say this. Sometimes I, instead of having a half full room, I'd rather have like a really small crowd or a sold out crowd. But in between is probably toughest. Yeah. Cause the small, but mighty crowd is like, we're here. This show better be great. Right. 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 I'm not, I didn't pay this money to sit here and the whole time kind of go, Oh, I made a mistake. Yeah. Cause they've already, you know, they've already committed. They're more so, invested because it's small. Yeah, absolutely. When when you haven't done, um, when you haven't done enough work and you haven't had enough of those experiences, then it's awful because you're just trying to pretend like it's a full crowd and it is not. Um, were you there for Kinane and Bronger, or were they gone by the time that you got there? Oh, for sure. And Kinane had all these jokes. But the one that I remember from him was uh, I went in for a job interview and he said at the end that I didn't have enough imagination. So on the way out, I uh, I imagined that I was a bird and I took a dump on his windshield. You know, and it's like that was so he did a better part. But that was so funny to me and it was so absurdist. Yeah. And so in the beginning, I thought he was a real absurdist, but he left not 
right away, but I think I only had a year or two maximum, but really a year. And then Bronner was really there for the majority of the time that I was there. Okay. And I thought he was so funny. He just had an energy and a way about him. And the Jim Morrison at the drive through Burger King. Burger King Whopper. Yeah, Burger King Whopper. So he had, he had a kind of energy that actually I think I emulated a little bit, but also was similar to what I was doing, which was always like, I still do it in this director. I just screened my uh, pandemic special for a director. And she was like, can you take out some of the yelling? She's like a famous uh, theater director in town, but it's true. I still get on stage and I'm like, yeah. Oh, how you guys, you, woohoo. And it's just, I want to inject the energy into the crowd. But she was sort of saying, you don't need to do that on a comedy special. You know, that's not for people at home. Interesting. I understand. Huh. Um, do you remember when Emily DeRizas was working at a thing called the, like the, it was like called SCTV, uh, Chicago, like stand up comedy television. And they were going to start a network across from Harpo studios. Do you remember this at all? Yeah, 100%. Stand-up comedy television, right? SCTV. And that really gave a bunch of us the promise of sudden entrance into television. Yeah. And I forget what it was, but I think they shot a pilot. I feel like I was involved in the pilot somehow or did some sort of television set. But it was at like a shitty public access television studio is what it felt like it was. Yeah. I haven't thought about that in years, maybe since I left Chicago. But yeah, but that was an example. Emily Teresis was always industry savvy. And that's why she made her way into getting Baby Wants Candy and ended up with Al Samuels. But then also they sort of, because she was with Sean Cole forever. Yeah, yeah they went to high school together. Kind of, yeah, oh, that's right. And they were... I would say that they were the Beyonce and Jay-Z of the Chicago Comics. <laughs> they were definitely Chicago's royal couple. Yeah. Chicago's comedy. Chicago comedy's royal couple. Um, but yeah, she always was working on something and had a way to move into corporate stuff. She was just a, such a hustler and was so industry savvy, but she was still in Chicago. Yeah. You know? And I don't think she ever really got involved with Second City because she was such a doing things on her own. You yeah. Know? How about the night Nick Vatterot went to the hospital? This is like the drunkest night that I remember. And I want to say we were at Nick's Uptown, or and you would have been there. You were at this dive bar that we went to, and you guys were doing waterfall pictures. Does this ring a bell to you? It, uh, I mean, it all – it rings a bell in the sense that I'm positive it happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I yeah. remember because I'm brain damaged, and I enjoyed marijuana very heavily after – I left Chicago. Also, this happened 18 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. But yeah, waterfall pictures make sense. Okay. And what happened? He went to the hospital? Uh, he, His building found him covered in blood and vomit, and he got charged $8,000. It was a night that we all went out. The Cardinals made it to the World Series, and we all went out um, after my show at High Tops, and we went to this shitty bar. I loved High Tops. And we left it. and we went to this shitty bar on Irving Park and like Sheridan that was had like an old style sign out front. It was called like Wrigleyville North. And it's the drunkest night that like people that can remember that it was like that was when I was like, oh, my God, we were getting shit faced back then. 
I do remember the old style sign, and you're right, it wasn't, it was not Mix Uptown. And it was not, uh, what was the one? It was like the owl or something. There was some bird one <laughs> that was a little bit out of the way. Oh, Birds was, was, open, birds was open late. Yeah, then it was Birds. Owl. Some sort of aviary. Um, <laughs> you were thinking of Bronger's uh, owl bit. That's what you were doing. Probably, yeah. And um, God, that's so funny. And um, and yeah, I, I I didn't remember that he got charged eight thousand dollars. He that would have taken him forever to pay back. I don't know where he ever would have gotten that. Yeah, money. yeah. Um, let me throw you. He in. was the one. Go he ahead. was the one that would never buy new shoes. He was in these shoes with holes, and he one of his coats got so tattered and torn that he found another coat and would wear both of the coats instead of buying a new coat. And he just smelled in a way that would make it impossible to have a relationship with a woman. So when... like the first year or two that I knew him, and he had the strangest hair, just the strangest, long, greasy hair. That was when he just did not have it together. I mean, who he is now, I never could have imagined. Who he was then was a guy who slept in a van. Yeah. You know, for real. I think he got Turco and he came back and he like looked like he got his shit together from Turco and I was like, oh wow. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of like, okay, this guy's serious. Brady one night talked to me and he was like, it's just, I don't know what, you know, it wasn't this, but he was like, what do we do about Nick? I don't know what to do about Nick. He has to get new shoes. His shoes, as soon as his feet come in the door, it smells so bad in the entire place. He's taking off three or four coats when he walks in and trying to put them all in. And part of that, too, is he would never spend money to take the L. So he walked everywhere, even in the snow. And uh, did I tell you about the time that I went over to his house? Did we talk about that? No, tell me about it. Almost no one had ever been to his apartment. I'm not sure he invited anyone in the apartment. And for some reason, he invited me in. This was years after I met him. It was like when we were really good friends. And he let me go to the apartment and the apartment was like an insane man. The only apartment that I ever saw that was like that was my own, where there was writing all over the walls and all these clocks up and all this stuff that Pete Holmes tried and failed to make fun of me for in uh, crashing. But we went in and there were like empty vodka or tequila bottles, like court, like plastic, like, 175s, you know what I mean? And like handles of it. And they were like in weird places in the corners. And it was almost like an art installation. And then um, I went to the bathroom and on the side of the bathtub, because the toilet was here, you know, the toilet's here and the bathtub is right here. And in highlighter, there was like this strange diagram that was incredibly complex. That's the entire side of the bathtub. And I remember it was an orange highlighter. And I came out and I said, what is that? And he said, oh, that's like a new format for an improv show. Just something that I'm working on. And he didn't totally explain it, but it was like five times as complex as the Herald. You know, it just, it was this genius, bizarre. And then I opened the closet because I thought it was the bathroom beforehand. And there was like 20 or 25 empty two liter Mountain Dew bottles. And I kind of said, what's this about? And he goes, it was just amazing. This kind of sums him up 
you know, in totality. He goes, oh yeah, that's, I thought it would be so funny to like have so many empty Mountain Dew bottles in there that when you open up the door, they all like spill out on you. And he goes, but every time I drink a two liter of Mountain Dew, I forget about it, I throw it away. And I get back and I'm like, ah, I was supposed to save that. So he had this idea that was so ridiculous and brilliant and funny, but he was too scatterbrained to remember to say, he used to drink Mountain Dew and eat like, either Cheetos or Doritos all the time, all the time. And he would carry that two liter around and just be drinking Mountain Dew nonstop. So his place was really the embodiment of an environment of an insane madman comic genius. What was the saying that people would say? Like, it was like, imagine the most depressing apartment in the world. Now remove the furniture. Yeah. That, yeah. That's fine. Um, that was, I, I don't know if anyone said that on stage. Might've been Brady Novak. I would want to say it's Kumail, but I don't think he ever was invited to the apartment. <laughs> Well, actually, I'm sure that he was. Well, the thing was that, like, uh, that I, night I, that... I'm not sure I would invite him to my apartment, you know what I mean? Much less one that had no furniture. It was Brady or some somebody like that, or Mark Ratter, and that sounds kind of Mark Ratterman-ish, you know? The the night that he passed out in the, like, the, the, um, the foyer of his apartment, like, you have to... Like, I've always kind of laughed and then felt bad... Just picturing what the people in the building thought, like, this is a homeless person. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, 100%. Especially the way he looked. He had this, like, greasy hair that came down to here. Yeah. But he was sort of balding on top. Yeah. You know? Yeah. At a certain point, not a lot, but enough that you were like, that's a strange, that's a homeless looking dude. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I've got to ask him about the $8,000 because... <laughs> You gotta think um, that how did he possibly? I'm gonna text him right now. Uh, uh, you gotta think that I don't know how he could have done that. And he was in the same apartment the entire time he was in Chicago. It was on like Lakeshore Drive too, right? Yes, it was it. It was on a row of very nice places, and the apartment was fairly big. I think it was a studio. Okay. But it was fairly big. And it was just so bizarre to me. But yeah, he would always walk home there. He was so fun, though, man. He would really, he would really get drunk. Yeah, that's TJ. Please click follow. Give me all of the stars. There's still more show. If you want video of this interview, if you want to see how the sausage gets made, an unedited clusterfuck of a video. And you want to see my panels, every panel since March of 2020, and a whole lot more. That is on the show's Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Brido. B-R-I-D-O. That's where you go if you want to help support the show. If you want to come see me do live stand-up in Los Angeles every Wednesday, I'm at The Fable in Eagle Rock. Mike Holmes and his wife Stacy are making award-winning burgers. Thrillist just listed them as having... One of the 24 best burgers in Los Angeles, unranked, but I'm going to go with number one, especially now since I invented, or I guess he invented, <laughs> I invented the name of it, but they invented a triple burger, which I decided is called the Brido. That's right. It's every man's fantasy 
to what? To have a sandwich or burger named after him. It's every man's fantasy. Think of you, you, sir. It's your fantasy. And that just happened, I think, for me. There's no official signage yet, but if you walk up to that fucking window and ask for a Brido, they will know. August 5th, I'm running my hour in Los Angeles at the Glendale Room. I'm having Lindsay Adams, Katrina Davis, and Lizzie Cooperman on that show. I got so choked up. I'm excited about it. Running my hour right before I record my album. I'm fucking pumped for this. Then August 11th through the 13th, I'm in Chicago. I've talked about it a lot. There's still tickets available. You have to go to thelincolnlodge.com. I know a lot of you said that you were going. Some of the people that I talk to regularly... It would be amazing if you made it out to that show. And that's what I wanted. I just wanted to beg you one more time to go to that. All right. We'll get back to the show after a brief word from our sponsors. What is the best way to handle the streaming wars? Judge all the content against each other. The Buffer Battle podcast does just that. Joel and Tony are former radio co-hosts who pit two relevant pieces of content against each other every week to determine the winner of the week. From documentaries to dumb sitcoms, these two will help you decide who wins. And at the end of each month, they throw it all into a no-holds-bars cage match to see who wins the month. Often joined by special guests, including your boy Brido, to help decide the winners, tournament style. These guys have fun making fun of themselves and keep their passions for film and TV alive during this podcast. Tony's a film nerd, Joel is a music geek, and they aren't shy about their opinions. Listen to the Buffer Battle podcast anywhere you download your podcast. Mike Bridenstine, and I have listened to None Taken. The ad we've been doing for like two years on Brido's show, it's all based on an inside joke on our show, but it's for listeners that haven't listened oh. to our show yet. Okay. So the joke yeah. is we always start our show with, you know, somebody as listened. a guest, and yeah, and I've never listened to None Taken. And right. And They're so, not going to get that. No, they've never got that. What an annoying <laughs> commercial. What a waste of time. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> Neither of us did. <laughs> and then the whole thing ends with these guys fuck, which was like something I said once at the end of a recording, like spastically, like impulsively. Oh, you're not supposed to say I still think anymore. that's funny. All I right. like it when the girl says it. I, I, uh, hi, Victoria. This is the best. This is welcome to None Taken. This is what None Taken is like. <laughs> Wait, did we just do an ad? Is that what you're telling me? I, I think that's what I'm going to send him, and who knows? I mean, he's played that for the last two years. Why wouldn't he play this? This is more like what our show is. Thank you, Dustin and Alan. Those guys fuck. Oh, Dustin and Alan think that they can switch it on me, just like they switch it when they fuck. Now, here's the thrilling conclusion of T.J. Miller. Out here, it's kind of like alcohol and weed have switched places. Like, people celebrate alcohol in the Midwest and kind of was were hush-hush about doing any other sort of drug. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And then in California now, if you drink a lot, people are like, are you okay, man? Right. Yeah. Do you want to talk about anything? Do you want to talk about any of this? Yeah. Do you need to see somebody? Yeah, because there's that whole Cali sober thing, which, by the way, Kate, my wife, Kate is like, that's not sober. And I'm like... Yeah, it is kind of. She's like, I know it's not. That's just not sober. And I'm like, dude, there are AA groups that are like, marijuana maintenance is fine. Uh And so you got to just give people a break. Because now CJ Sullivan is Cali sober for sure and has been for like two years. Right. Um, 
Yeah, but I know in the Midwest, if you didn't drink a lot, it was, and I still go back there and the body type in the Midwest is different. It is. You know, if a guy kind of looks like me and my current weight, they're like doing pretty well. Like for sure, for sure. They're kind of like eating pretty healthy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if I if if I weighed ten or fifteen pounds more, yeah, I would just be a dude in the Midwest. For sure. You know, it's and really strange. Good looking. No, no one would look at you and be like, "Well, you're a little overweight." That's just not how it works. Right. You know, that's just not what it is. And uh, and so yeah, but Nick was Nick was the greatest enigma of Chicago. For sure, an enigma. Well, can I can I give you another enigma uh, name? Dwayne Kennedy. He was like Dion Cole, and actually Lil Rel, who I saw recently. He was sort of this a black guy who was smarter than anyone else in the room. Yeah, and for whatever reason, part of it was that he always wore glasses. But he had been around a long time before me. He only drank red wine on stage. And then he left when I started to be somebody who was doing a lot of shows. Right. You know? And uh, shows. I still can't seem to give up the word set, um, even in New York. What's wrong with I, that? I'm going to do a set here. I'm going to do another set here. Do you guys say sets in uh, LA? I do. So in New York, it's a spot. Oh. Which I think is kind of lame, to be honest with you. Like, when's your next spot? Are you doing other spots? But that's just what they say. No one says set. No one is like, I've got two sets downtown. <sighs> well, they also go up on stage and pretend like they're not thrilled to be there. They okay, this yeah. is so stupid. Can you believe this? This is stupid. Oh, yeah. Where in LA or in New York? In New York. LA we hump the stool and the mic stand and whatever we can. I think LA is a tough one because you're like, Hey, I'm cool. And I'm cool enough, I don't need to be here, but I really, really think it's cool to be here. It's like a weird, there's a lot of weirdness to that. There's a Vaderot joke that I love. He's like, a downtown comic in New York is like, uh, what's the most offensive thing I can say? A Brooklyn comedian is like, what's the least offensive thing I can say? An L.A. comic is like, hey, I'm a famous skateboarder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that's what it is. It is Um, and Brooklyn comics are like, none of you are as progressive and woke as I am. Yeah. So I'm up here to tell you why. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't, you know, I think, all right, well, let's, let's go through some more names. But Dwayne Kennedy was great, but I always loved Dion Cole. And he played mostly North Side Rooms. And then I saw Lil Rel recently, and it was so good to catch up with him. And I cannot wait to, like, link up with him in um in los angeles but he is such a star and we kind of knew that from the south side when he went up he was really popular at like jokes and notes and south side rooms and he would come and do north side rooms but i remember he just wasn't like he was kind of like a cannibal he just wasn't like any of the other black comics in the south side like there are a lot of black comics in the south side that were more like earthquake they were just doing that style of comedy and then the north side um uh, the comics that could translate to the North Side were like Dion Cole, Lil Rel. I'm not sure Dwayne Kennedy performed on the South Side at all. Um, there's a night, there's a specific night that I think about where Kirsten Ames from you got Aspen. I want to say you started to get Aspen on this show. It was a showcase at the Lodge, 
Michael yeah. Costa, Lil Rel, you were on it. Um, do you re- remember this? And after that, did Aspen have a major effect on your career? No, and neither did Just for Laughs. I got Just for Laughs through something else, but I was in the last... Oh, because I got Variety's Top 10 Comics to Watch. Yes. And then Aspen, I got... Um, and I, I did it. It was the last year that they ever did it. And I was so bummed because I'm from Denver. Right. So I was so excited to be able to go back there as if it was just for laughs. My manager, Dave Becky, had so many people in the festival. And he, like, told me he'd be somewhere and he wasn't. And I got really mad at him. And I was like, don't tell me you're going to be somewhere and not come. That's Don't stand me up ever again. And it was so weird because I saw him be like, whoa, this kid is, like, he's, like, not afraid to stand up for himself kind of because everybody gets a manager and the manager is supposed to be in charge right and i was sort of in charge and i had for many years that was a contentious point between me and my manager was that i was sort of managing myself and not saying like what am i supposed to do now right Um, but aspen didn't do a lot for me neither did just for laughs and neither did it's just in my life, the things that get everybody else something. So I'm sort of always on the outside. How about Dave Odd? There's oh, a man. How can you not talk about Dave Odd? He's the best one. Boy, we can do a whole podcast. Uh, there's a whole chapter of for him. It's the the name of the chapter in the book is called A Whole Dave Odd Chapter. Is it really? That's great. That's amazing. That's perfect. That's perfect. He is, yeah, a whole chapter about Dave Odd is warranted because he was both the lifeblood and the pariah and the gatekeeper and the um, uh, problem with in Chicago comedy. He was like all of those things. I always thought he was so nice and he gave me so many opportunities. He was just so creepy. He was a creep. But I thought, well, his name's Dave Ott. That's kind of his brand. Yeah, he's telling you what he is. <laughs> yeah, he's odd. But we all had to work with him because he had so much stage time. Yeah. But I have to be very clear that the reason that all of these comics have been so successful is definitely, assuredly in part, because of Dave Ott. Yeah. Because he has such an eye for talent. And so as soon as he liked what you were doing, he would give you as much stage time as he wanted he did have an eye for talent, but his batting average was uh, everybody gets to come do it. And then, you know, like the the average, he, yes, he's the first person to get to book T.J. Miller, Hannibal Burris. you know. No, no, I just mean, no, no, no. I, I mean that he would, once he thought you were good, you could do every single one of his shows. Okay. If you okay. brought people or not, it didn't matter. And I kind of remember that moment. It was in a garage at a place called Four Taps or Four Lions or Four something. And um, it was, the show was in the garage of this bar. It was in a house. And um, it was, he kind of said, you know what? You're really funny. You can do all of my shows if you want to. And I know that there were quite a few people that he did that for. And so that's what I mean. It's not, let me put it this way. He didn't discover anybody because he was discovering everybody had money and he wanted to discover their money going into his pocket 
okay? But, or their friends' money, I should say. But he would pick really great people and give them so much stage time. But you also had to be nice to him. And I'm kind of nice to everybody. And I think a lot of people just couldn't handle his uh, bullshit. And so they just wouldn't put up with it. I have to credit him with giving me so much stage time. I mean, Pete you Holmes know? has a $10 yeah. bill framed in his kitchen from Davod. Yeah, I believe it. I would believe it uh, in a heartbeat. That's true. I did not frame anything he gave me, including <laughs> chlamydia. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. All right. <laughs> Uh, did you ever get on the Chicago message board where he was kind of the king of that? Yes, I did. 100% I did. Um, yeah, I mean, he was, uh, he was the king and I was looking at that message board. Geary was on there a lot. Um, but, uh, that was during the time when I was working at a law firm and that, well, you know, I was on there a lot. But after a while, as a Yahoo message board, it's just people stopped posting and it was really just yeah. him posting. <laughs> yeah. But that was, when I came in, that was sort of the thing of lore. And I didn't know if I could get on that, you know. By the time I think they let me on, it was sort of winding down. It was fizzling out. Do you feel like um, in the big sick that there's a character, CJ, is based on anybody that we know in the, from the scene? I don't even remember the movie that was. That was uh, Bo Burnham's character, CJ. What did he act like? Was he kind of a douchebag? He had industry attention before other people, and there's a character who's very clearly Jeff Singer. Uh, Is there... uh... I would believe it. Who would CJ have been? Was he talking about me? I think he's talking about you. That's That's my theory. And then Bo was kind of a dick in the movie? I would believe that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, and when I did Crashing, I kind of, Pete sort of tricked me and Dustin and some people, he didn't let Dustin play himself, but into kind of playing themselves in a way where I was supposed to come off in a negative light. I thought everybody you know? did that, though. Mulaney did that, too. Mulaney's like the biggest asshole on that show. Yeah, I don't know that he, well, maybe he is the big asshole in real life, but I sort of played it thinking, like, I'll make fun of myself. Yeah. He was being, I think, in some ways, really cruel. We shot at Governor's, where I'm headed tonight. Actually, oh. I got to go in just a second. Um, we shot there, and he had me perform and then say to Artie Lang, follow that, you know, because I wanted to go first or something. And that's something I would never say to anybody, including Artie Lang. Right. And And then he had me, I was taking pictures afterwards, and people were saying, will you say that line from your sitcom? And I would do it, and I wanted to take pictures of everybody else. So, and I thought, okay, he's kind of making fun of the fact that I was in a sitcom or something. And um, because at that point in my career, I was kind of maybe had done carpoolers and maybe Cloverfield. And what I realize now is he was sort of trying to say that I will be this kind of washed up, that I. I, the only thing I'll ever do is be that guy with the tag line. He was wanting me to play that guy. Huh. And then, of course, that didn't really ever happen, obviously, because people, there was a period in my life where people are like, will you say Jin Yang type of thing, you know, or quote things from the avocado line and those sorts of things. But now no one does that at all, ever, because 
that's not now it's just like can i take a picture with you because you're tj miller right but i think pete has always had this weird you know pete always used to say this that i was sort of x factor and that everybody kind of stole from me which i disagree with um, he said that to me always, yeah yeah he's been a very strange uh kate says he's a friend of me but I think he's just always had a strange sort of insecurity that he's open about in a very sweet way. But I think maybe Judd Apatow kind of, I just, you know, I've never understood where I fall in how people feel about me. And part of that is because I don't really think about other people thinking about me. I'm missing that part of my right frontal lobe where I'm like, oh, should I wear this? What are people going to think if I wear this when I walk outside? Like I'm unable to move into the, the empathy of other people's minds like that. Um, and that served me well, but also is not, you know, it's really, look, to be a responsible comedian, um, I kind of got a jettison. So yes, you throw yes, me yes. one more, will you throw me one more? And then even if you never use any of this, can we do this again? Yeah. Cause we yeah. haven't gone through everything. And again, you're asking about, there's so much there, but I really want one of these to be, just be me asking about memories and asking you kind of about these people. I don't know if anybody's done that. For no, no yet. one has. No. So I would love to like interview you. So next time we should do all of the rest of all of it. Yeah. And then do one, just me interviewing you. Well, some of them, that. some of them are small. Like, I, like I would love to get a quote from you on like X, Y, Z type of thing, but like, it's not, it's nothing that has any sort of meaning to you. It's just that the quote would have, weight coming from you if that makes sense and so it's not like it's that's not that important of like uh do i want to hear you talk about like adam crocius's stalker sure but do i need it no so like like there's certain stuff like we didn't talk about that was go ahead yeah but that adam crocius thing i heard about that and it was so weird to me and also the way and he was really funny whenever he did the elevated i thought he was so funny but he also walked that line of like saying the least self-aware things of all time and all of us would laugh at him instead of with his joke but one night at the elevated that chick showed up and it was really scary yeah and i remember how nobody knew how to handle it really and what are we going to do and a lot of us didn't know what was going on but crocious knew and she was dangerous and i do remember that that was i just remember that being so confusing and never understanding why would anyone have a stalker? You know, why would it be Adam Crocious? You know, what kind of crazy, it was really what kind of crazy person is stalking an open mic comedian in Chicago, you know? And then yeah. years later, I would have this stalker and it would be so scary. And she would show up. It was the same girl in college who then like said all that crazy, awful shit about me to try and kind of ruined Kate Mai's life in, during the Me Too stuff. Oh. That girl in LA wanted me to do her show, her and this guy, um, Dan Dominguez. They wanted me to do their show. She emailed, he emailed me. I have those emails where she's like, uh, where she wanted to have a conversation or send me a letter about how there was a lot of gray area, you know, with the stuff that she said in college and she wanted to apologize for things. And I, of course, was so scared of her that I was like, I'll never meet her. Don't send me anything. Looking back, I should have said, you can send me a letter if you want to apologize, but I'm never going to sit down with you. You totally fucked up my life. 
you you did such it was so awful what happened in my family because of that but you know she's i think borderline personality disorder or something so what she would have done is she would have sent that and said that i never repaired things and she later realized that she was just there's always a way for her to frame me as a monster and Kate as being abused and taken advantage of and all this stuff, you know? No, I, but so at the time, the crocious thing, I was like, I just couldn't understand or attach myself to that. But years later, that same girl that we're talking about came and saw me at Improv Olympic. And when I was on stage, I saw her face. She was sitting on the stairs and she was just looking at me like with a Cheshire cat grin. She was just like, and I, I was like, oh my God. And so this was um, that, I, now that you mention it, I look back and being like, that's so crazy. Who does that even happen to? The great irony is that years and years later, I would absolutely understand. At some point I have to do even just a book about that. But the, the crocious thing of it was, um, I also remember that he was kind of, he wasn't an asshole, but he was sort of a jovial, gregarious dick. He was fine kind of being a dick to people and being a dick about stuff. Yeah. And then when I saw that happen to him, he, you could tell that he was really scared and that it was a really scary thing in his life that he never knew when it was going to go away. Yeah. Which, you know, now has been my experience. But so that was pretty weird. But like, I, you know, what we need to do is, don't you have a bunch of quick hits where you're like, Spen, give me a quote. Yeah, I had like a, know. I had a bunch. Like I was gonna go K Rock. I was gonna go. Uh, yeah, what? Bastion. K Rock yeah. was like the Chicago. The Bastion was the first time that there was a blog about Chicago comedy. I remember if you got on that, it was amazing. It was like getting press. Yeah, she was just such a super fan and so sweet. And uh, yeah, you know, she was one of the first people I realized like being comedy adjacent, like Emily Gordon was um could be a really big part of not only a person's life but also of our lives right to have somebody that was supportive and doing something besides stand-up but helping to build the stand-up scene i feel like she validated us to us which was great blair postman yes she later would run uh, a comedy festival in washington dc right yeah and yeah. She was one I what I remember about her that's so weird is we had an email relationship, just like a friendship, um, while I was working at the law firm as a secretary. And so for whatever reason, I often emailed with her during my day job. That's what I remember about her. She managed she, very, she you got her to manage blurds, I wanna say. Yeah, I would believe that. She's managed because Rory she was, and Blurt. Wow, that's weird double trouble. Yeah, and we've got to talk about Blurds. I mean, Blurds was such a huge part of my success and kind of my, not a springboard for me, but like it contributed so much to me being able to have video. And of course, Jordan Bell Roberts, who was the director of Blurds, later that was, I did a short film with him that became um, uh, a Sundance, uh, you know, film. And then, you know, Blurds eventually became Mashup. Yeah, which one? That was the first Comedy Central show that I produced. Which one was the Tomzik movie and which one was the Jordan movie? Jordan was a successful alcoholic. Jeff Tomzik did. uh, I'm having a difficult time killing my parents. Okay, okay, okay. So next time we'll do Blurds and 
Jared Logan. Jared Logan. And that's it. <laughs> and then we'll you'll interview me. <laughs> no, but we'll talk. Yeah, we'll t- we'll talk more. All right, we'll set that up, dude. Always uh, such a pleasure talking yes, to you. Of course. So yeah, let's talk again soon. And, okay. Uh, and yeah, all good, man. This is great. I uh, I love talking, as you well know. You're quite a hunt. <laughs> Say hi to CJ. Oh well. All right. Later. It's TJ Miller. I will tag him on Twitter and Instagram. If you, I'm sure you know who he is, but give him a follow on social media and go see him live when he's uh, coming to your town. He's uh, he's on the road. He's doing shows. You will not want to miss him when he comes in town. They say that word of mouth is the best form of advertising. If you like this show at all, please tell people. You can retweet my thing. You can mention it. You can say, hey, I like this show. Do stuff like that. That would help me out a lot. (laughs) Thank you for listening. I appreciate you. Come see me in Chicago. R.I.P. Michael Clark Duncan. R.I.P. Jack Knight. Bye.